So I'm here with a legend of economics. You know you've made it in this business when they name a rule after you. And my guest today is the creator of the Taylor Rule, Professor John Taylor. He's a professor of economics at Stanford. He's from the Hoover Institution. And, and I think, you know, well regarded as one of the, the leading lights of monetary policy theory in the last 30 years. Thank you so much well, for thanks, joining us thanks here. Thanks for saying that. Thanks for Thanks for having me here. My pleasure. Let, look, let's start with something of an overview of, of 10 years. I mean, it's been an interesting decade in monetary policy since the global financial crisis. What lessons do you think that we have learned and maybe what lessons should we have learned? One of the lessons I think we've learned, we're beginning to forget about it, is that going into the crisis, uh, the Fed and other central banks held interest rates quite low for a long time. And it stimulated a lot of searching for yield, excess risk-taking, a boom in the housing market, which eventually led to a crash and the deepness of the financial crisis. So one of the things we learned is don't do that again. Don't really take interest rates to levels that are not sustainable. What's one of the interesting things is during this period of time, the Reserve Bank of Australia did not have interest rates so low. They were more reasonable and there was not nearly the same kind of crisis that occurred in Australia. So it's, it's a little indication that there's some um, method to this description I'm talking about. Yeah, and I suppose one of the interesting questions from monetary policy is we saw the deployment of unconventional uh, methods. We saw quantitative easing um, in a number of different major markets in the world. How effective do you think quantitative easing has proven to be? Is it delivered on Milton Friedman's promise? Milton Friedman didn't promise quantitative easing. He promised a fixed growth of the money supply and uh, rules for uh, central banks, which uh, I've learned a lot from him over the years and knew him. I think the quantitative easing, at least as conventionally defined, uh, it's unconventional, but there's definitions, didn't really help very much. Uh, it really began in the US uh, in earnest in 2009, continued for a few years after that, then Japanese jumped in, they did it, and then the Europeans jumped in, many other countries. And I think the lesson that we've learned is they were focused on exchange rates, at least the Japanese and the Europeans. And it didn't move exchange rates, but it didn't get the economy moving uh, much at all. I think the analysis that people are doing more and more suggests that it really wasn't that effective. And uh, it really was an attempt to deal with the interest rates getting very low. Uh, near zero in the US and even negative in the other countries. Yeah, but we did see, at least in terms of capital markets, some interesting, um, if not concerning at times, growth in, in asset prices that, that people have tried to link with quantitative easing. Do you think that that side of things was, was one of the unintended consequences and perhaps a negative one? It could have been. I think the evidence still out, whether it really had that much of an impact on the goal, which is the lower longer-term interest rates. Uh, I think there's evidence that affected the exchange rate, and, and that goes in the direction you're saying. But for the most part, uh, and this is you know, a great debate amongst economists. In fact, some countries are thinking about doing more quantitative easing as we speak. But I think as we look at it and look at the data, it doesn't really have the impact. And I'm talking about 2009, 10, 11, and the period 2008. Uh, there was actions by the Federal Reserve, which is to provide liquidity 
and interest rates came down quite sharply in that period. I think that was the right thing to do, but then afterwards I raised questions. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a criticism of, of central banks um, in Australia, in the US and elsewhere by people like Professor Scott Sumner, for example, that far from having interest rates too low, that the reserve banks were actually asleep at the wheel and didn't do enough in terms of trying to cut rates and, and boost inflation. What, what's your sense of that critique? Well, I think that misses the problem going into the crisis. He talks about during the crisis, and yes, we can debate about how fast interest rates came down. They came down quite quickly, but I think the real concern is rates being too low for too long before the crisis, and that's really what we have to learn. We don't want to do that again. So I, th I think that's really where monetary policy changed from where it was very successfully in most of the 80s and 90s. It then took a different attack, and there's debates about why they did that, but I think it's pretty clear that was one of the reasons we had the financial crisis. Yes, we could debate whether interest rates came down quickly enough, but they came down very quickly when the crisis actually began. Yeah, and I suppose, I guess, you know, following on from, from that question, um, one of the things that we've noticed is that interest rates fell to near zero all around the world. Do you think there was a sense that once one economy and one central bank went down that low that all of the other, you know, there's sort of a contagion effect or a domino effect where every central bank had to pull down to the same level. And, and, you know, one of the reasons why perhaps it wasn't as effective is because everyone had to go at the same time. I think there was a contagion for sure. And you could even hear uh, central bankers like uh, Mario Draghi saying that. and. In Japan, Abe won the election, said he appointed uh, Kuroda, did appoint Kuroda to really do the quantitative easing. And here it was following because it was the exchange rate. The, the original impact of quantitative easing in the U.S. was to weaken the dollar against the yen. And so then the Japanese did it to weaken the yen against the dollar, and the Europeans came in. So it was a very following aspect. And you can see that in, in many countries. Still, there's a concern about exchange rates. and some of the following to lower interest rates now, which you see is motivated by exchange rates. And I think that's a problem with the financial system. We should have exchange rates that are more stable and, and monetary policy just goes after the exchange rates uh, can be destabilizing. Mm. One of the interesting things, I suppose, about Australian history in the last 30 years is that when we floated our currency, went from a fixed currency to a floating currency, the the rate of exchange in the early 80s was, you know, a dollar thirty US for every Australian dollar. Uh, we fell to less than 50 cents um, in the early 2000s. We we went back up again to a dollar five at the point that I was fortunate enough to go to Hawaii and, <laughs> and, and had some yeah. fun with US Good dollars. You. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, you know, the Australian currency's fluctuated quite a lot. Do you think that that's a, a sign of of sort of you know, effective monetary policy, that, that Australia's been doing the right thing and just letting that wash I think through? I think it has been helpful for Australia that exchange rate flexibility uh, has provided more insulation from the shocks from abroad. I also would add that Australia has had more open capital markets, like the United States, but, but more open than many other countries in the region. That's, that's also been a positive. Those two things together have make, made the Australian economy uh, work better. Of course, you could quibble, maybe the exchange rate fluctuation was too much, but it was going in the right direction. And I think it really hasn't been a focus on the exchange rates as a policy. It's really the exchange rates reacting in a helpful way to 
keep the economy moving more smoothly. I think that's right. I mean, Australia's exchange rate in particular is very flexible to, to mineral prices because our terms of trade are very yeah. um, dependent on mineral prices. Right. And, and I suppose one of the things that, that Australia has has really done is is look at that open capital market structure, the, the more free market style of, of economics, and that's that certainly assisted our central bank. But I suppose another thing that's assisted our central bank is that the economy's always been been held back by the central bank in the sense that, you know, if they took the break off, growth would in accelerate, inflation would accelerate. Um, a lot of countries around the world are now facing a different problem of sustained low growth, sustained low inflation and, and, and finding difficulty in, in changing that situation. What should governments do to, to boost the economy and, and create some inflation now? I think, on, first on the growth, uh, there's a lot of things that, that governments can do. It's not all monetary policy, that's for sure. It's things that stimulate productivity growth, things that stimulate uh, more labor force participation. Those have to do with taxes and regulation. And I think you can see some changes in the U.S. is uh, more emphasis on reducing tax rates, more emphasis on, on less regulation, and the hope is that will increase growth. And I think other countries could do that as too, inclu including uh, Australia. So the, the key in terms of growth is to do these things that are generate, would generate. We know from economics they'll generate more growth, but we've been reluctant to do that uh, until recently. So I hope we do more of that, and not just in Australia and the U.S., but globally. In terms of inflation, I think the, the sooner we get back to a more normal policy, the better off we'll be in terms of inflation. It's actually kind of healthy that so many central banks have an inflation target, say 2%, 2 or 3%, whatever it happens to be. And so that creates some uh, world policy which works best. But I would, I would be very more, more positive if we got back to a more normal kind of policy like we had long before the Great Recession and interest rates would be adjusting and, and each country would know what the other countries are doing. I call it a rules-based policy. So each country has a rule, whatever it happens to be, and, and that's uh, explained as much as possible to uh, other people, including other central bankers. I think the world w would work better in that mode, and in fact, it did work pretty well in the 80s and 90s in that mode. Mm. One thing we did see, if you look at the history of interest rates, for example, is that they were exceptionally high in the 70s and 80s and early 90s as a response to what was you know, significant double-digit inflation in, in a number of, of countries. Since that time and the introduction of a more rules-based system, interest rates have trended down. They fell fairly rapidly initially, but subsequently across the major economies, they've sort of tended to trend down over time. Do you think that that's a, a trend that will continue if we go back to an, a more normal rate? A more normal rate will be lower than it was a decade ago? Or, or is that something over time you would expect interest rates to rise back up towards 7 or 8%? No, I think a lot of the reduction in interest rates was the result of conquering inflation. We did a terrible policy in the 70s. Inflation began to rise and finally in the 80s many countries took different periods of time, but then attacked that inflation rate. Inflation came down, interest rates came down as a result of that, and the economy has worked much better since then. The debate now is whether maybe one percentage points in addition is due to other changes in the economy. Economists call this R star, or the equilibrium interest rate. Maybe that came down. Lots of people are doing uh, research on that. It's not completely clear how much, but the magnitudes are much smaller 
than what you indicate. I certainly hope we don't have inflation coming back as we had in the past and it led to lots of problems, misallocation of resources, ultimately high on our unemployment. So I hope we don't go back to that. I think there's a real chance we could get a better world if countries were clear about their, their strategy, were explained if they think the interest rate is lower and by how much. And the more of that dialogue that occurs, uh, the more rules-based or strategy-based policy is, the better the world economy will work. And just at the risk of perhaps sort of taking this level just back towards more basic principles, when you talk about a rules-based system, what are you talking about in terms of central banking? Oh, it's, it's pretty clear. Some central banks have followed a good rules-based system. I think in the U.S., much of the 80s was moving in that direction. The 80s and the 90s were moving in that direction, the early 2000s. And then we got off of that. We had rates were much lower than you would explain based on the same kind of rule they used in the 80s and 90s. And you can see that in other countries, too. So a rule is not necessarily something formal. It's just a description about how the central banks will raise interest rates when they need to, lower interest rates when they need to. And that has to do with inflation and the state of the economy. So it's explaining that. You can do it mathematically, but central banks don't need to be so specific. They just need to be clearer than they are now. There's some very good developments in this direction in the United States. Uh, the Fed is publishing in its reports rules that they think are useful, We're talking about how and when they deviate from them. So that's very promising. And what sort of rules would, would the Fed be following at the moment, just in terms of for, for people who are watching this who aren't economists who yeah. you know, don't understand what a rules-based system is, what, what would be an example of the sort of rules? That well, a rules-based rules system is, is, say, inflation picks up then you say, well, well, we will raise our interest rates when inflation picks up. Or if there's a recession, we'll lower interest rates. And there's even some description about how much. For example, uh, if inflation rate rises by one percentage point, it's probably a good idea to raise the interest rate by more. One and a half is a frequent recommendation that comes out of rules. So that would be an example. Or if the economy goes into a slump, uh, then you lower interest rates. So, so the rule, the strategy is, well, in these circumstances, we will change our policy. If those circumstances don't evolve, we'll keep our uh, strategy or our interest rates uh, steady. So that's what a rule is. It's descript describing how the central bank operates in as clear as uh, possible way. It's like sometimes a strategy is a better description of, of it rather than a rule. That rule might convey something more precise and mathematically that's possible. One of the important elements of a rules-based system is the independence of a central bank. And I think, you know, we, we learnt that lesson the hard way. We had very politically influenced monetary policy for a long period of time and, and it was fundamentally ineffective. We determined that the independence of a central bank was important. How important do you think independence of a central bank is in this, in this modern world? I think it's important. Uh, I don't think it's enough. I think you need to both have the independence and the description of a strategy. Those things go together. In fact, if you look at history, take the United States, for example, same degree of independence in the law has led to different kinds of policies. We had an independent central bank in the 70s. Same, the law didn't change, but the policy was terrible. Independent central bank in the 80s and 90s. The law didn't change, at least by much, and policy got much better. So you need both of those. I think it's very important to stress. Both of those are important. And I suppose when we talk about independence of the central bank in the 70s, one of the, the interesting stories is, of course, Richard Nixon calling up the, the head of the, the Reserve Bank saying, look, 
we need you to do the right thing on here on, on interest rates. Um, we've seen in recent times suggestions via Twitter from the US President that you know the, the Chair of the Fed, Jerome Powell, is, is not doing a good job, that he needs to be far more active in cutting rates. Do you think there's a, a genuine threat to the independence of the central bank or is this more of a, it's, a, it's a sort of argy-bargy of US politics? It's a good question. I think this, the 70s is very interesting. No, Arthur Burns was the chair of the Fed. He actually wrote a memo to President Nixon saying we need to do a different, we need to wage and price controls. And so it was quite a different uh, strategy. Uh, it wasn't good. It was bad economics leading to, to bad policy. I think you've always had commentary from, uh, from the administration or the executive branch. And I think the more that it, the central bank has its strategy clearer, the less impact those comments, off the wall comments, uh, if they occur, uh, will matter. Because again, the, the central bank has a strategy. Hey, this is what we're doing. This is, what, this is how it works. And so that influence will diminish. That's why I think you need both independence and kind of a statement of what the strategy is. Well, speaking of, of commentary, we saw last week an opinion piece from Bill Dudley, um, who was a former head of the New York Fed, I think, Correct, yes. suggesting that the, the bank shouldn't engage in, in Trump's trade wars, that, that they should basically let the economy tank. Um, rather than prop up what they think is bad policy. Is, is that an, as no, think, extraordinary a... a I think that's, that's not the way to proceed. And that's, again, the one way to prevent that is, hey, this is what we do with monetary policy. This is what's worked in the past. This is why we're going to continue it. And it doesn't mean doing these things to crash the economy for political reasons. That's not what monetary policy is for. And it's, it's complicated when you get into those discussions. And much better to say, Here's our strategy. Here's how it's working. It's not perfect, but we think it's working well, and, and keep up that. It's not just the, it's the chair of the Fed. It's other members of the Federal Open Market Committee in the case of the U.S. And more important, it's a global issue. So it's not just the Fed. It's other central banks that are part of this as well. Do you think that the, I mean, one of the, the hallmarks of modern American society seems to be increased polarization and increased partisanship? Um, you know, there's significant issues around the judicial system and, and concerns about partisanship there. Um, I think there's probably similar concerns about the economics profession when, you know, you see people who are considered prominent economists writing what are functionally political columns. Do you think that same partisanship is, is dominating the economics profession and is that likely to, to impact policy going forward? I think it could, it could have become more partisan in, in recent years. It's kind of reflecting the disagreements that occur in the society as a whole. Right now, there's a debate about why is growth low in the United States. Some people think, as I do, the policy could be much better. We could have a better tax and regulatory policy, better trade policy, all those things could. But others people, oh, no, it's just the way it is. Get used to it. Growth will be low. So that debate is, um, is in the economics profession, and it carries over to the politics as well. So I think the, the way to handle that is you have to continue to have the good discussion explain the things, but it is more pol polarized than it used to be. Has Trump really shaken things up? Has he, has he drained the swamp in, in terms of... He's, he's done a lot, and I, I, I think, again, I'm positive, as I've already indicated, about the tax, tax rates coming down, uh, reform, uh, lower, trying to lower the tax on capital. I think some of the regulatory appointments, uh, the SEC, some to the Fed, um, have been positive in the sense of using more cost-benefit analysis. Regulations have costs as well as benefits, taking those into account. So that's a change. You can see it. And I think the economy 
in 2017, 2018 has, has done better. We'll see if it continues. It depends a lot on whether the policy will continue. And uh, there's also been a lot more discussion about the international side, uh, pointing to what China has done in terms of tariffs, or restrictions on ownership. And that has uh, provided much more information that people didn't talk about very much. And so you, you see much more talk about that. Now, hopefully it will lead to some better policies, but in the meantime, it's uh, raised awareness in people's minds about what's actually going on. And do you think that Congress is you know, aware of perhaps the ec how economically damaging some of the things that they're talking about are? And I'm not just talking about Trump and tariffs, but I mean, you know, we can see on the Democrat side some suggestions that, that you know, evoke the worst periods of, of, of sort of policy that, that we can remember, you know. Some of the original proposals in the Green New Deal that were leaked about basically allowing people not to work if they don't want to. Uh, yeah. Do you think that, that Congress is becoming a problem in that respect? Is it that their policies are, are unworkable? So a lot of that is, is talking about what would happen if I get elected or someone else gets elected. And we're sorting that out. I think to some extent that reflects the polarization that we just got discussed a few minutes. I think what we've learned, uh, what I've learned certainly and other economists who look at it, is certain policies work better. Uh, good regulatory environment, good tax system works better. And you can see rule of laws, of course, of course, very important. If you look through those things, the U.S. has done better when it's followed those policies and then worse when it hasn't, so have other countries as well. But it's always uh, something that can go back and forth politically. So I hope whatever happens in the elections that people try to articulate good policy because it works. It works much, much better than bad policy. And uh, that you, you mentioned some other cases that are being proposed, but I think uh, just have a, have a good debate and argue the good policy, and including budget, by the way, because our budget uh, deficit is still quite large. And that was the question I was, I was going to ask next. Um, you know, the budget deficit in the U.S. is probably 70% of Australia's GDP, <laughs> which is, you know, extraordinary to people here when you, you think about people get exercised over a million dollars of spending to have a trillion dollar deficit. Is, a, is an extraordinary thing. The Republicans, I think, historically have been a lot more concerned about deficits. Is, is there a problem in the Republican Party now that they've basically given the deficit fight away? I think it's more general than parties. Uh, I think there's been uh, more of a complacency out there in public discourse about the deficit trillion dollars a year is a lot. It's going the reverse direction, given the state of the economy. You have deficits and recessions, and, and you move towards balance and, and booms. Uh, so there's, there's quite a bit of, I would call it almost complacency at this point about it. Interest rates are low. It doesn't seem to be that damaging to people. But we can't forget that eventually interest rates will rise, and they'll be their impact. And in the meantime, it does crowd out other things. So I think it's a concern, and I think it's as policymakers address other issues, they'll eventually get to that. They can't forget it forever. And of course, a trillion dollar deficit is leading to $17 trillion in, in debt or thereabouts. Yeah. Do, does an enormous quantity of government debt have a material impact on the exercise of monetary policy? There's a couple of ways that I could, I could think of, but one of the, the more interesting ones is does the government, would the government put pressure on the central bank to keep interest rates low because they couldn't afford to pay interest on the debt? Well, there's always a concern about that in, in many countries. And I think that's kind of why I keep coming back. Let's have a strategy 
that we know works, and then the, the central bank will, will follow that, and there's no, no reason to talk about anything else. There may be debates about the so-called equilibrium we talked about a few minutes ago. Those are good debates to have, but in the meantime, you, the central bank will be able to resist certainly inappropriate pressures uh, to expand the economy, to, to cause inflation, which is going to be detrimental to everyone else. You want good, steady monetary policy that keeps inflation steady, and keeps the economy as close to expansion as possible, and deviating from that is not a good idea. On the other side of the aisle, um, we've seen some suggestions in monetary policy from, from the new favourites of the Democratic Party. Um, MMT, modern monetary theory, that basically says that there's no cost to the central bank monetising any amount of debt from government. Uh, how much of, a, of an impact has that actually had on the policy community? Is that really the fringe idea that it seems, or is it something that, that's gaining traction? I don't think it's had impact on, on the Fed. Uh, I always joke modern monetary theory is like the Holy Roman Empire. It's neither modern nor monetary nor a theory. <laughs> and, uh, and that's true to some extent. And in a, in a way, it goes against a lot of the things that we've just been talking about, what's, what's made economy better. In the 70s, we were financing deficits with money growth. It didn't work out that well. We had inflation, high unemployment. You can see other countries where it's failed, and so I think it'd be a mistake to go in that direction, and uh, we'll see. We'll have to have a discussion. But so far, I haven't seen it have, have a practical impact. That, that's quite reassuring. The other obvious example, if we're talking about international issues here, is, is what's happening with the European Central Bank, what's happening in, in Brexit. Now, obviously, the Eurozone has its own particular issues. There's a big issue around the way that fiscal policy is implemented in, in various Eurozone countries. We've seen significant debt crises in, in a number of Eurozone countries. Is the ECB doing a good job? It's a difficult job because all the different countries, different languages, I've been more positive about them putting the central bank together, European Central Bank, and dealing with it. I think more recently they're at this mode, which we talked about a few minutes ago, the interest rates are below zero. Uh, they've talked a lot about the exchange rate. I think it would be better if they normalize, at least gradually in a predictable way. I think that the, the European economy would work better in that way. It is a global issue, though. And so they're looking at the Fed. Uh, the Fed's looking at the ECB. The Japanese are involved. The Swiss are involved. Australia's involved. So it's a global thing. So what, what has to happen, there has to be a return to more normal policy. And uh, with $17 trillion in debt with negative interest rates at this point, it's not where it's going to stay. So the sooner we get back to that in a predictable, understandable way, the better. And the Fed uh, has moved its interest rates to closer to more normal levels in much of 2017 and 2018. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, the, the Europeans have adjusted. Of course, they're going back again at this point. But uh, the key here is to have a better international economic system. And to me, that's countries describing their strategy as much as possible, having exchange rates absorb the shocks and, and moving towards more open capital markets, those three things together. So in, in a specific example, obviously, we're coming rapidly up on the Brexit deadline. Um, what would you do if you were you know, the governor of the Bank of England um, and you could see Brexit on the horizon, you can't you know, really tell at this point what the strategy is going to be? What sort of things could, could the Bank of England do to both prepare for Brexit 
and then in response to the sort of shock that they might receive from Brexit? I think, I think they're best following a steady policy, which if the economy really slumps because of Brexit, I don't think it will. Uh, if inflation picks up because of Brexit, then they adjust to that. But not to take special actions, trying to guess what's going to happen with Brexit or its impact. It's very hard to know. So here to me, it's more important than ever for the Bank of England to follow a steady policy, not trying to guess the future, which they can't do anyway. Nobody can guess what they're doing, but, the, but a, a steadier policy, which, is, which has worked in the past, and I think it will continue to work in the future. And perhaps one last question, if we can go back to America. I mean, I think it's, it's been, uh, let's say, an interesting few years. Um, I, I think the divisions in, and in the country have, have, that have been shown by the election result, the, the way that some of the Rust Belt states, for example, have, have, have gone and, and performed relatively poorly economically for decades. Uh, it suggests that there's a deeper problem within American economic policy. Uh, what can government, what can the central bank, I mean, what would your recommendations be to try and fix those issues? I think a lot of the issues are the slow growth we've had. We had a terrible financial crisis. We had slow growth coming out of that crisis. A lot of people were hurt, still are hurting because of that. We've had a nice little pickup in the last couple of years. We and wages are growing again, which is, yes, it's been a while it's, since it's, that's It's happened. a positive. And so those are, those are the things that continue to doing it. And I think it, more generally, different parts of the country need different strategies, need to do different things. And California could do a lot more in terms of helping people that are not do, surviving too well. For example, it's the highest poverty rate in the country. California could do more. And so that would that's could really, fix its housing policy. Could, it could do a lot in terms of land use uh, uh, regulations and opportunities. So there's a lot to do. Um, but I think in terms of the federal level of, of faster growth, would be would do wonders uh, to many people, and as you say, we're beginning to see some of that. Professor Taylor, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you so much. Great questions.